0: Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences.
1: I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Program here at GW.
0: And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're talking about integrating yoga and physical therapy with Ariel Foster, a Doctor of Physical Therapy yoga teacher, and founder of YogaAnatomyAcademy.com.
1: Her teaching is multidisciplinary, influenced heavily by movement science, functional movement, and the yoga styles Kripalu, Vinyasa, Anisara, Yoga Works, Restorative, and Therapeutic. As a physical therapist, she utilizes the best of manual therapy, functional movement, and yoga asada for full rehabilitation of her clients. Ariel also graced the cover of Yoga Journal Australia's July twenty eighteen edition.
0: Welcome to GW Integrative
2: Medicine, Ariel.
1: Thanks for having me. We are very glad to have you.
0: Yes. Now, not everyone has heard of yoga physical therapy. Uh, can you give us an introduction on how to how you integrate yoga and physical
2: therapy? So, it's probably best to start with with my relationship with yoga and then how I got into physical therapy from that. So I started teaching yoga when I was fresh out of college. I was 22 years old, and I believed at the time that if I just figured out how to do the right yoga, the best yoga, the best alignment, that it would solve any issue, You know, the yoga for headaches, yoga for cancer, yoga for um, healing anger, et cetera, et cetera. And what actually happened is I was quite drawn to vinyasa yoga, and I injured myself about five years into my teaching. And I went to see a physical therapist who was able to help me really, really quickly. And that is what kind of catapulted me into this Idea that I might want to become a physical therapist. And so from that point on, it was still quite a while until I was able to, you know, enable that dream. But what I do now, as someone who's been teaching yoga for 19 years and practicing physical therapy for nearly 10 years, I now see that the skills that I learned from yoga have benefited my physical therapy really extensively and vice versa.
1: Ariel, your approach is movement science-based and you describe it as playful and creative with purposeful alignment. Can you tell us about the science behind it and how did you develop it?
2: Since I became a physical therapist, my yoga practice has shifted a lot. And I've looked to, kind of, you know, by... By the nature of being a physical therapist, I've studied with uh, different physical therapy styles, and physical therapy as a profession aims to be, for the most part, quite evidence-based. So evidence meaning that there's trials, that there's research done in institutions that have um, published the research with, with peer review, and that's not, the tr- that's not the same in the world of yoga. Nobody in the world of yoga is is necessarily asking for for evidence before you put your foot one way versus the other. So in certain ways, the world of yoga, and I'm speaking generally about the world of yoga and yoga asana, and what I do as a physical therapist are are very, very distinct. But in my physical therapy studies and continuing education studies, I started to reexamine some of the things I did on the yoga mat. And as an example, in Warrior One or Warrior Two, which are like commonly taught yoga asana positions, there are sometimes instructions to bring your front heel in line with your back heel or front heel in line with your arch. Now, when you look at it from kind of knowing the anatomy and from a movement science perspective, you would want an athlete, somebody who's maybe um, performing. in in sports, you would want them to be able to handle both of those subtle changes and to be, to not be injured in either. So you want to build in athletics, typically a a deep resilience. And in that resilience, you want to be able to um, allow your athletes or your performers to be in a lot of different positions and not get injured. And then in yoga, we sometimes get a little tunnel vision that there's this one perfect placement mm-hmm. for where your foot goes or where your leg goes or where your arm goes. And so kind of bridging those two gaps is really, really interesting. I'm constantly kind of reevaluating old beliefs that, I, that I've had in the past. And I think you have to be really playful and creative to, for me anyway, to keep my my interest high. I don't want to do the same routine, this is me personally, on the mat Monday through Saturday and repeat that for years at a time. So the creative part for me is really about like keeping my interest high. And playful is about like having fun while I do it. I think that it's easy to get really, really serious about a
1: subject like yoga or physical therapy for that matter. Well, that's so true. My, my yoga instructor is always yelling at me to smile because I, I tend to grimace and be very serious <laughs> when I do yoga.
2: Yeah. And so how can we have more of a lightness about what we do? And I think that even that statement would be backed by basically movement science because at the end of the day, when we're looking for, you know, complete health and resilience in our bodies, um, movement science is going to, gonna you know, aspire to allow us to be human and to play and to go out and, um, you know, invent new sports and new movements and push the limits of our capacity and not get injured from it. And that is definitely under that umbrella of play.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know there's actually like a whole movement out there of trying to get more play in our lives in general, but especially in adults, because it's, it's very natural for children to play. In fact, it's hard for us to get them to stop playing. But for some reason, when we grow up, we lose that sense of playfulness.
2: Absolutely. I remember in my pediatrics class, the instructor, the professor saying, the job of a child is to play. Like this is literally the work of a
1: child. I love that. Yeah. So how do you get people to be more playful when you're working with them? So um, our audience is a lot of healthcare professionals, but also a lot of, of people who just are interested in this field. So just keep that in mind. But how how can people be more playful when they're doing um, yoga or, or other related exercises?
2: Well, I don't know that I'm an expert on, on play and playfulness on the yoga mat, but I know that each time I've tried to fit my body into some of the more rigid styles of yoga, whether it was a yangar or uh, Ashtanga or just even even an individual teacher's specific cues, that when it doesn't fit, I've been very quick to historically beat myself up on the inside. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really, I think that's really at the root of it, the opposite of what the practice of yoga is asking of us. The practice of yoga is asking of us to be, um, to be, you know, whole and to be excited. And uh, it's just such a different thing, not to create little internal divisions within our brain and our body. So although I don't consider myself like an expert on on playfulness specifically, I think that that a big practice for those of us coming from an alignment based um, yoga is to just color outside of the lines a little bit more, and to realize that it's fine if you don't put your foot exactly here or your hand exactly here, and that you can spend more time in the places that are between the poses or outside of the poses, and what will actually happen is your body will most likely become more resilient, gain strength, and most likely gain stability within that.
1: That's a very good point. Do, do you see repetitive injuries in people who maybe are more rigid in their their practice of yoga?
2: All the time, yes. Um, and it may not even be extremely rigid practices. Let's take the most commonly taught yoga style in the city where you and I live, which is DC, mm-hmm. we have a lot of vinyasa teachers and practitioners yeah. in the city. And the word vinyasa and the way it's being used in contemporary yoga classes indicates a movement from plank pose through chaturanga, through a backbend, most likely upward facing dog, back to downward facing dog. Mm-hmm. So those four Poses or variations on those poses are found in somewhere around 70%, 80% of the yoga classes in our city. And you don't just do that one time in a class. Many vinyasa classes, you're going to do that at least 10 times, if not more, maybe 20 times, 30 times in an hour. So I see a lot of repetitive stress injuries from yoga practitioners who get injured and then have to come see me for my physical therapy skills.
1: I have actually suffered that type of injury myself. Um, I used to be a very rigid yoga practitioner, and I thought that there was a right way to do it, and I wanted to do it right. And I hurt my shoulder. Um, To this day, I don't really fully understand how I did it, which is why I think it's a stress injury from doing too many vinyasas and, and perhaps um, being too forceful with myself rather than listening to my own body. So I could, I could see how people will do that. I have done it. Um, and for me, one of the things that I've tried to do, and I think maybe playfulness will be my new mantra, but I've, I've tried to realize that every person is different. And I, I preach this on my expertise of nutrition, that every person is different. But for some reason, when I step outside of that box, I forget that fact. And I feel like I have to be squished into this little mold that is the quote, unquote, right way of doing it. And I think that your approach could really benefit a lot of people who can get caught up in in doing things the right way. And maybe that's not even the healthy way to do it.
2: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll I'll say that I do see a big movement or a meaningful movement within the world of yoga asana teachers moving outside of rigid definitions of what your yoga asana should look like. And that's really heartening. Um, So what we're doing as yoga asana teachers who are on this kind of edge of evolution is we're taking the ideals of yoga, the mindfulness, and applying it to other, for the most part, body weight movements. And those might have historically fallen under calisthenics. But I don't think of it necessarily as blurring the lines, but just welcoming more into the fold of what is yoga. And I think that that's ultimately going to serve yoga students so much more. The kind of repetitive stress injury that that you might have had could be from really simply just having a dominant arm and relying on that one Mm -hmm. a little bit more. It could be from uh, maybe in the moment you were you didn't feel anything it, that could have been negative at right. all. It could be in the moment that you didn't have any kind of uh, signal from your body that you could have possibly noticed. Because a lot of times these signals come on later, the next day, even. And it could have been from, you know, maybe even a pressure. Maybe you did get a small signal, but there's a, just a general pressure of being human and being in a room of other people or. In this day and age, online, virtually, in that virtual room with other people, and the instructor's asking you to do something, even if you kind of don't want to do it, you'll often push yourself through it just to complete, because that's what you signed up for. So there's a lot of factors that go into why we get repetitive stress injuries. Um, And the best way to make sure you don't get one is to change up your practice. As much as you can.
0: Ariel, I just wanted to roll back to what you were saying about the evolution of the asana um, style among practitioners and yogi. Can you give us an idea of, of what's driving this
2: evolution? I'll do my best. In my opinion, I have seen some changes in yoga in the last couple of years. Now, I think just like all of us these days, it's hard to say whether it's just what my social media feed is looking like and the people that I'm surrounding myself with, or whether it's a true major trend in the bigger world of yoga. But I think there are enough well-known yoga teachers who have adopted as, it shifted their asana style, asana meaning just the physical practices of yoga, into a more kind of global calisthenics, body weight conditioning type of practice, incorporating more Pilates, incorporating more functional movements. I have seen this in a big enough way that I think it's genuinely happening. And it's been happening for a number of years, but it's accelerated in the last year or two. And I think that one of the reasons it's happening is because we're, kind of many of us are aging into yoga. I was really fortunate to get exposure to yoga from a young age, even in my elementary school years. But for a lot of people, they got into it in their 20s, mid 2000s, late 2000s. And now they're looking at their 30s or their 40s. And their body is different and they're experiencing injuries. They're noticing that yoga hasn't been able to do everything that it might have promised to do for them. And so they're looking for teachers and they're looking for styles of yoga so they can still do what they love, but not get injured and still build up strength. And they're looking for those teachers and styles that will kind of color outside the lines and allow more different types of movements in. So that's my take on the the evolution of yoga that I think is happening right now. And again, it's yoga asana specific. It's like we've tied historically the movement of yoga to what we would consider classical poses, it classically acknowledged yoga poses. And now we're allowing something like a yoga bridge, which might've been a back bend, to also be a core pose or a hamstring strengthener, just with sl- slightly different, Shifts in how you'd teach it, in the way that I, as a physical therapist, might teach it to therapeutically, um, like complement what somebody's need was. Um, you know
1: where they've had a weakness in their body. So when you're talking about the bridge, would you think that would be useful as like a pelvic floor exercise? That's what I'm thinking of. What I hear is well, let's
2: talk about the way I've heard bridge pose taught historically in the world of yoga. Your feet would be really close to your hips. You'd be able to reach out, maybe even grab your ankles, if not at least be able to touch your ankles or your heels. And you would squeeze your shoulder blades together underneath your chest, underneath your upper back, and lift your chest towards your chin. So already you're aiming for a backbend. And you're working the scapular retractors in your upper back and you're working your quads pretty heavily and you're working probably the muscles of your low back in that way on either side of your low back. So that would be a classical like style of bridging the exercise known as a bridge that we would do in yoga where it looks like a backbend. But you could do bridge as a hamstring strengthener. Walk your feet more forward, uh, dig your heels in. Dorsey flex your foot, toes pointed towards the sky, and then just lift up your hips only a little bit so that you're still keeping a straight line from your shoulders to your knees. And so that's a way to target a completely different set of muscles, your hamstrings, rather than your quad dominant or low back dominant. I don't think bridge itself is necessarily going to directly uh, change the dynamics of the Pelvic floor, changing it between one variation versus another. But what changes the pelvic floor very much is the breath pattern we use and the capacity of like control that we have over the entirety of our core. And that's a much more complex um, (laughs) kind of conversation.
1: That's fascinating. That's very helpful. And I think a lot of people will find that example very helpful to understand exactly what you're talking about in terms of changing yoga.
2: Yeah. So as a yoga teacher, you know, when we were, when I was teaching in in studios, I would look around the room and if I was teaching that second kind of bridge pose that I just described to you guys that really activates the hamstrings, people who are really accustomed to doing it the first way would often struggle to do it the second way or sometimes they would reject the teaching that i'm mm. offering them and it's funny to say that out loud outside the context of a yoga studio because you're like why would you ever reject just doing a bridge pose a separate way but people can become so deeply attached to their particular style of yoga their practice of yoga the way they've done it with this one teacher for so long i i think that in a world that has lost a lot of ceremony, a lot of ritual, a lot of ancestral connection. We glom on just very naturally as humans, and maybe we do this whether we have ceremony in our lives or not, we glom on to these rituals. And yoga and the practice of yoga in community has been very much a ritualistic anchor point for all of the people who fall in love with yoga since the dawn of
1: group classes, I can definitely understand that. When I I moved from Baltimore to D.C., trying to find a yoga studio is, um, well, for women out there, it's 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 worse than trying to find a new hairstylist, <laughs> because you're you're so emotionally invested in what you already perceive works for you and makes you happy, and then trying to find that again uh, sometimes is actually impossible, right? If you you are going to a certain studio that has a very specific type of blend of different types of yoga that may not exist in a different city. Um, And that's very frustrating. But I will say that in hindsight, after talking to you, I think that it pushed me outside of my comfort zone um, and made me try things that maybe I otherwise wouldn't have tried. For instance, I I love vinyasa and um, I used to not think that I could, I was capable of doing slow Hatha asanas because I needed more uh, physical stimulation so that my mind would quiet down. But what I've found now that I've done yoga for 25 years, that's no longer true. I can do a slow Hatha um, asana and still have that mental calming and not start thinking about my to-do list. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't tried a different type of yoga. That's brilliant.
2: And it may also be a testament to the hard work that you did in faster paced classes earlier exactly on yeah. your mind. Yeah, that's beautiful.
0: Ariel, what tips do you have for the average person to incorporate some of your style of yoga therapy PT into their daily life?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to back up and I'm going to explain kind of what my style is and then I'm going to answer this question. I don't have anything that I would um put a stake in the ground and say, this is my style. Like I am very much, as far as yoga goes, an interdisciplinary yoga teacher. Interdisciplinary, meaning like multiple different styles of yoga, um, basic movement and exercise science, uh, you know, tips and tricks that I've learned in physical therapy, in my physical therapy continuing education studies. Um, And that's constantly, and I, I truly mean that, in constant evolving. It looks different than it looked maybe even a month ago or two months ago. So I'm always changing. But I think the key words for me are just motion is lotion. This is something I tell a lot of my Mm. physical therapy patients. And when I have been in uh, physical therapy jobs in hospitals where people are in inpatient positions, they love hearing this and it helps them to really understand the role that we have as physical therapists in those settings. If you are bedridden because of a, a stroke, for example, and somebody tells you motion is lotion, just do whatever you can. It doesn't have to be big. Um, it makes a lot of sense. When it comes to you and me and the realities of our daily lives right now, I, if, if you said to me, Ariel, I haven't left the house all day. I have been on my computer for the last... 6 to 7 hours straight. I ate lunch at my desk today. I should I go to a 1-hour vinyasa class or take a 20-minute nap? I will I not a nap <laughs> take a 20-minute walk. I guess you guys know where my mind is right now. <laughs> Freudian slip. Um so between like a walk and a yoga class, I'm almost always going to prioritize walking. I'm almost always going to prioritize like basic movements. Stand, see if you can make your stand, your, your home desk or your work desk into something that looks a little bit more like a standing desk. Even if you only stand for five minutes an hour, the benefits are exponential. Walk, even if you walk 10 minutes twice a day, the benefits are exponential. And yoga and kind of that instructed movement it comes behind in my in my sort of internal ranking or hierarchy it comes behind the basic movements like standing like being able to get in and out of your chair without using your hands like being able to get on and off the floor without using your hands or using them as minimally as possible so Really, your yoga asana should should ultimately serve you and to those bigger goals of your life. And what tends to happen or historically has happened is that we have bent our bodies to serve the yoga asana. And that's a really, really profound shift in our mindset. If we can shift out of a place of serving the yoga or the yoga asana, and just allowing the yoga asana to serve us. And what that looks like in reality is allowing yourself to take a walk instead of going to yoga class at times, if that's what you need, allowing your yoga to look differently than it might have historically looked, or it might not look as classical as it used to, and incorporating really sometimes quite basic movements into your yoga practice that are either really functional or sometimes come from um, the calisthenics or other weightlifting traditions like variations on on get-ups that will actually serve you much better for the entirety of your life than a warrior one or warrior two that looks picture perfect. So I think that answers the question about like my my tips for the average person. And also, I do believe in naps.
1: <laughs> <laughs> N- naps are very good. So so is walking. I, I I think we would fully support your statements about walking. I, I I'm trying to think. I think it was our second episode ever it was on the new physical activity guidelines and how walking any amount, like you're saying, ten minutes. If you do it twice a day, that's great, is, is beneficial, and that people shouldn't feel like they have to go to the gym for 60 minutes to be in shape. Um, and it's more about physical activity rather than exercise, formal exercise. So thank you for reinforcing that point for us. Absolutely. I'll have to listen to that episode. Yeah, please do. Um, I'm wondering if now that we've talked a little about what the average person can do, is you have, if you have any tips for healthcare providers, maybe physicians who want to help their patients. Yeah. Okay. So
2: as you, as you all know, I'm wearing the hat of a yoga teacher, but I'm also wearing the hat of a physical therapist. And I think one of the biggest messages for medicine in general, so it's not just the physicians, it's the nurse practitioners, it's it's everyone, is to really know that there are almost always more conservative. Solutions than pharmaceutical medicine, and I think that that most most prescribe like prescribing healthcare practitioners know that they're not really jumping the gun to offer pills to their patients, but I don't know that it's really widespread that people understand the benefit that is that exists within the realm of physical therapy. And that is something I would really, I wish more more medical practitioners understood. I am 10 years into my profession as a physical therapist, and I am such a fangirl of physical therapy. I had a client on telehealth that I met a week ago, and she is in her 70s. And she has lumbar stenosis, which is a chronic condition, and she's had chronic pain for years to the point where she didn't want to retire. She was retiring in her 70s, but she had to retire because she could no longer function at her work because of pain. And in one week, and I literally I gave her three exercises to do. We met for an hour. I gave her three exercises. She told me this morning that she was already feeling better. Now, I didn't solve everything, but that she had seen meaningful progress in seven days, and that was through video. So, I just I'm such a fangirl of this profession. I'm i I know that in any profession around the world there are um, gradations of of quality, but I I wish that physical therapy be, would be more of a first option for people whether they're having back pain or neck pain or numbness and tingling or just, you know, knee pain and stuff like that. Very often, doctors are very quick to prescribe imaging, which the studies are showing is not terribly helpful and often leads to surgeries that are unnecessary. And that they're really, um, you know, a a little bit hesitant sometimes to, to prescribe physical therapy. So, that, that's my big thing. And then I think also for the yoga therapists, the yoga practitioners out there, also don't feel that you have to know everything. I definitely outsource when I'm out of my league. And I think that, you know, if you're a yoga teacher or yoga therapist, you should outsource to a physical therapist when you're um, clients are experiencing pain that's not getting resolved. So, those
1: are my suggestions. Yeah, those are those are great suggestions and I think that speaks a lot to other issues that are going on in the world, for instance, the opioid epidemic and the benefit of that is that um, insurance and healthcare is changing and they don't want they really don't want you to, to start with Opioids or even painkillers, and they're they're pushing alternative. Well, not alternative. Uh, what what really should be the first line therapy for for instance low back pain? It should be physical therapy and perhaps maybe massage and acupuncture. And then if those things still aren't improving it, then maybe we need to look at alternatives such as surgery.
2: Yeah, and if I was talking to a friend of mine, like let's say a friend who doesn't live near me where I couldn't. Help them out with their physical therapy. I would also say, you know, if you, for whatever reason, are not a good fit with the first physical therapist that you try, don't hesitate to try a different one. We don't hesitate if we are facing a big decision like a surgery to get a second opinion. And I think that within physical therapy, second opinions can also be really helpful. It's another set of eyeballs. It's most likely not going to hurt. None of the interventions we do are terribly invasive. So it's really, really powerful to just keep shopping around until you find someone you you do have a good relationship with and build that up. And if physicians could communicate that to their clients, to their patients as well, I think that could be helpful that you might have to try a few physical therapists till you get a good match because it's not usually going to be an overnight success You want it to be a longer term relationship that where you can go back and they can get to know you.
1: And there's so much power in that. It's amazing. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. That is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Ariel. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health.
1: I'm Dr. Lee Frame.
0: And I'm Janet Rodriguez.